Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. The breaking news last night. We thought we had the whole show already planned out, right, for today, what we're going to talk about, because there was lots to talk about when suddenly this little bombshell dropped. Vice President Joe Biden uh, on Capitol Hill yesterday doing some of his Senate duties uh, met with reporters afterwards, and he was kind of joking around, and they said, so, you know, what's up, Joe? What are you going to do next? Uh, and Joe <laughs> has got their head spinning by saying, you know, I'm thinking about running for president in 2020. Just to be clear, are you kidding about running for president in 2020? I'm just, I'm, I'm not committing not to run. <laughs> I'm not committing to anything. I learned a long time ago, fate has a strange way of intervening. Fate has a strange way of intervening, he says there, yes indeed. So he says on 2020, I'm not committed. It, it's kind of a, a, you know, kind of edging into it backwards, right? I'm not committed to not running, meaning I am committed to maybe, maybe. running yeah. in 2020. Yeah. Uh, and I have also um, uh, learned, I uh, haven't been able to confirm, but heard good rumors that, in fact, uh, Joe and Jill Biden are uh, house hunting here in Washington, D.C. So um, if that's true... And what Joe said last night is true. He's really serious, wants to keep a presence here in Washington and certainly wants to keep his name out there. So here we go. Off to the races. What do you think about it? Are you ready to jump on board the Joe bandwagon for 2020? 866-55-PRESS, the toll-free number. Uh, Let's hear from you. 866-55-PRESS. Now, let me give you my take on it. Okay, first of all, you know, uh, let me set the scene, right? I am a Californian, but I was born in Delaware. So by by native by birth and by and up until I was 18, I lived in Delaware, and I consider and Delaware is my home state, and I love Joe Biden. I'm I'm chair of the Joe Biden fan club. I know him pretty well. He knows me. He knows my whole family. I love the guy. Number one. So. I'm a big Joe Biden fan. Number two, I told Joe Biden he should have run this year. And I still think he should have run this year. And I believe if Joe Biden had run in 2016, in fact, I remember telling Bernie Sanders at one time, Bernie, you know, the better you do, the more likely Joe Biden's going to jump in because you are proving that Hillary Clinton is vulnerable. Uh, And Joe came very close to jumping in, as we know. He didn't because he was really um, a lot of time was spent with him and his family after the death, the sudden death and, and tragic death of his son, Bo, to cancer, that that took so much time uh, and emotion and energy uh, that Joe felt that uh, he he just couldn't put it together at that point. And so 
Uh, he did not. He chose not to run. But I believe if Joe Biden had run this year, he would have won the primary. I think he would be the president-elect of the United States today. Having said that, 2020 for Joe Biden, I don't think so. And I'm not ready to jump on board that train for a couple of reasons. Number one is I don't want to talk about 2020. I don't <laughs> care who it is. I don't care if it's Jesus Christ come back to earth or Pope Francis or Barack Obama, I don't, or Michelle Obama. I don't want to talk about 2020. I don't want to hear anything about it. I'd like to have a rule that Democrats don't even consider anybody, any possibility for 2020 until at least after 2018. I'd like to wait until 2019. I'm willing to wait until 2018. After we get the, the important midterm elections behind us and take back the House and take back maybe half of those 900 state legislative races that have been lost under under uh, President Obama's term uh, and get some governors back. I mean, do well, rebuild, reorganize, fight back, win in 2018, and then we could talk maybe about 2018. So that's number one. Number two, I just got to tell you this, Joe Biden will be 78 years old. The Democratic Party needs new leadership, next generation of leadership, we don't have to go back, you know, 70, 60, 50 years ago to get the people who are going to lead the ticket. The, pardon me, the same people who have been around and around and around and around for so long. And good for us. Joe Biden has been one of them. But that doesn't mean we have to go forward with, with him again. I think he had his chance this time. He didn't take it. He chose not to take it. Too bad. Next time. No, Joe. You know, it, it also strikes me My as take. this being... Try just one thing. Okay. My take. Yours. Let's hear from you. 866-55-PRESS. Go. Oh, this, this also highlights a problem that, that Democrats have had in that you have got to start building low. Start building from the ground. Start building those state legislatures. Start building up those House races. Start building up those Senate races. Throw your efforts, throw your resources there, because that is the most immediate way that we're going to be able to at least slow down Donald Trump and the Republicans. Yeah, right. Now It's again, nice to say, oh, we can win back the White House. That's great. That's great. You still have a Republican House. You still have a Republican Senate. Don't talk about 2020 right now. I'm telling you. Plus... Again, I, I, I hate to be an ageist. I'm the last one probably who should be an ageist. But, you know, in 2020, Joe Biden will be, as I said, 78. Bernie Sanders will be 78 or 79. Um, Elizabeth Warren will be... Well, 71. 71. 71. So, so would Hillary, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think they're just about the, the same age. <clears throat> don't, no. get any, don't get any ideas. No, no, no. None of the four. <laughs> I'm saying none of the four of them should be running. We're going to talk about a total, total new uh, generation of leadership for the uh, Democratic Party. So God bless Joe. Huge fan of Joe Biden's. One of the best vice presidents in the history of this country. One of the best United States senators ever and one of the most qualified. You know, chair of judiciary, chair of foreign relations, respected around the world. He would make a great president of the United States. Had his chance, didn't take it. It's not going to happen. No for 2020.
Igor Volsky from the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Deputy Director, if you please, good to see you. Good morning. Good to be here. Yeah, how about it? Igor, one of the most troubling stories of the last uh, uh, last few days has been right here in Washington, D.C., with this nut from North Carolina driving up here. um, So, North 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 Carolina. North North Carolina. Carolina. Uh, driving up here with a assault wife, re- weapon and walking into the Comet Pizza store out in Northwest uh, and um, firing a, sh- a shot there, now under arrest. Fortunately, nobody hurt, no lives lost, but very, very troubling incident. Very troubling incident that was fueled by fake news that, of course, started from a very creative reading of the Podesta emails where Hillary was going to have a fundraiser at this Comet Pizza shop. Yeah, they're just talking about having a fundraiser. Somehow one thing led to another, and it became part of this larger conspiracy that Comet was the central place where young girls were trafficked uh, for sex, and that uh, Democrats, high-powered Democrats, were all involved in this kind of operation, or at least benefited from it. Um, it made its rounds all through kind of the right-wing fake news sphere, uh, dark corners of the Internet, and appears to have motivated this guy to take uh, uh, to take action uh, and to do what he did. Right. I mean, who came up there thinking he single-handedly, right, could save uh, these, these these young girls, right, from the sex slave ring and this maze of tunnels that allegedly, you know, connected the pizza place to the gas station to the bookstore, this whole thing, an yeah. operation run by John Podesta and Hillary Clinton. It's so preposterous, so outrageous, and yet, uh, it, as you just point out, it got such traffic. And Alex Jones, we, I mean, some of it was like anonymous postings, right? But also we know Alex Jones actually talked about this on his radio show. Alex Jones, whom Donald Trump, to whom he gave an interview, elevating yeah. him, and the son of Michael Flynn, the national security advisor to be, has been sending, putting this out there under his on his own Facebook page. Yeah, and not just uh, not just that, but you also have the children of the employees of Comet Store uh, being paraded online as examples of children who are mm. part of this sex slave trade. Uh, the owner of of the pizza of, Com- of of the Comet Pizza Shop, um, the you know is being targeted. Of course, there's a whole YouTube video of him with over a hundred thousand views, accusing mm. him of this and that. Um, so it's a, 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 an example, and I just the first of of many, many, many I'm sure to come, of how this kind of fake news really puts people's lives at risk and puts people in danger. And this common story probably isn't even over yet. Uh, I, I, I guarantee it's not over yet, by the way. It's not over yet. <clears throat> because, no, I mean, no. we talk about fake news and we talk about, which is, I mean, fake news, I think, is too nice of a term for something that's just a lie. Yeah. They're just lies. But this picked up a whole new set of scene because it is, it is such a richly textured conspiracy and there have been other governments where they people try to say the same thing, right? And so they, they think that there's a worldwide conspiracy between governments to traffic in children to have sex with them. I mean, to go so far as to say that there are tunnels in that neighborhood, on that block, 
where they could go to the gas station across the street or the bookstore down the street and 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 it didn't just catch life on Facebook and then um people freaked out about it no. the pro government publication in Turkey wrote it up as a legitimate news yeah. story and so when you now have the foreign press writing about it as fact then the fake news or the lies or the people who are the fake news mills, people are purposely writing fake news to get clicks, the line is completely blurred. The line is completely blurred. And that's a really dangerous place to be. Well, yeah. And, and but particularly, I think, uh, serious about this and troubling is that it's fake news. It's not just leading to this dissemination of bad information, but to violence. Yeah. Uh, and... and I think it's very sad, too, that Donald Trump to this date has not said anything about this. Well, look, one of the things we and have to... You know to, that guy was a Trump supporter. Well, yeah. One of the things we have to figure out, both with, with Trump and his supporters, when he, and he didn't propagate this kind of thing specifically, but certainly uh, he has trafficked in conspiracies in the past. You see people close to him trafficking in these kinds of conspiracies. Yeah. Michael Flynn's son specifically tweeted about Comet, but Michael Flynn tweeted about similar conspiracies. Uh, Michael you know, Flynn, how Michael Flynn you... has, 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 has tweeted about Hillary Clinton being involved in some criminal yeah. conspiracies. Yeah. I mean, he himself, the general. So the question is, they do this because it speaks to a portion of their base, and because um, it rallies that base and it builds political support for their government, right, and for their political vision. And there's no consequences for it, really. Uh, Donald Trump won a presidential campaign based on belief in all these kinds of conspiracies and based on retweeting all kinds of white nationalist garbage. So the question is, and, you know, and that happened, and and the Democrats are the ones who are being asked, you know, but, are, but but is Keith Ellison anti-Semitic? But let's really, is Keith Ellison, let's, why are we elevated, right? So we have to really think long and hard about how to respond to this kind of thing when it comes out of the Twitter accounts of powerful people. But also, how do we as a society um, ensure that there are uh, uh, incentives in place that discourage this kind of fake news from coming about. And I don't know what that is exactly, and I don't know exactly how you go about drowning it out uh, without having all kinds of free speech implications. There's so much here. But there's also there's one other aspect of this, which makes it even more troubling, which is that this story broke, really started to break, um, what, um, at least a month ago, at least even before that. A little bit over a month ago, yeah. And and James Alephantis, the the owner, started getting all this hate mail mm-hmm. and 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 directed at, as you pointed out, the employees at him at the store, and they called the FBI, right? James Comey's FBI, which was so busy reinvestigating Hillary's emails, the FBI did absolutely nothing. They got no response, zero response. This was a I mean, a domestic terrorist threat, but a terrorist threat against this place. The people threatening violence against the store, its owner, and its employees, and FBI did nothing. Why? Why? Right? Um, talk about priorities for the FBI. So I think, that, as you, you point out, we all agree, we haven't seen the end of this story by far. No. And unfortunately, I'm afraid there'll be other incidences like this. 
which then and then gets to the whole broader question of uh, fake news when you've got the Trump people going out there saying, well, you guys just take Donald Trump too seriously, literally. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't mm-hmm. take him seriously because he doesn't mean what he says. He's just... The, the classic yeah, example is that millions, three million people voted illegally in this election. Yeah. He won, and he's still fighting that. <laughs> and, and and there's zero evidence of it, and he's they're still saying it. Yeah, I mean, there's something about this sense of uh, he just says things because they're provocative and they make news, uh, but people don't hear it because it doesn't impact them, right? So the, I think Kelly, Kellyanne Conway made this point. There's a difference between kind of saying crazy things and having crazy policies that it actually impact people and that voters see the difference. You said it far more artfully yeah. than I'm saying now. But I think there's something to that in the sense that a connection should be made that what he's saying and the way he's – conducting himself in office and the way he's going to be conducting himself with all these conflicts of interest he's going to have is going to impact taxpayers and is going to impact America. Um, and that that may be a way to start kind of breaking through this. Or as one of our guests put it yesterday, that the difference is that the Trump supporters took him seriously, but not literally. Yeah. The problem with the media is that we took him literally but not seriously. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now, do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. We welcome back to the studio a good friend from the Washington Post, Wes Lowry, who is also uh, author of a brand new book, Hot Off the Press. Now, this one's just hot to the touch. Uh, it <laughs> warmed it up for you. The microwave. Up. Thank you. The book Wes. is straight fire. It's literally hot. It is also so timely. Uh, sadly, we're still talking about this and more and more examples of it. And uh, a big trial in South Carolina uh, didn't go so well yesterday. We'll talk to Wes about that. And the book is They Can't Kill Us All, Ferguson, Baltimore, and a New Era in America's Racial Justice Movement. Wes Lowry. Hello, Wes. Nice to see you. Great to see you, too. Thanks thank, for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for uh, for for being here. Uh, I want to start with an announcement made by uh, the judge in uh, Charleston yesterday, mm-hmm. Judge Clifton Newman, um, reporting to the court what the jury had reached in the trial of former police officer Michael Slager, uh, who shot and killed Walter Scott as Walter Scott was running away from him unarmed. Here's the judge. See the note that says, we as a jury regret to inform the court that despite the best efforts of all members, we are unable to come to unanimous decision in the case of the state versus Michael Slager. So reportedly it was 11 to 1. They needed 12, a hung jury... Uh, 
Yeah, Wes, we've seen a lot of videos lately. We've seen a lot mm -hmm. of examples of police officers shooting unarmed victims, particularly young black men. This is the worst of all. So this was the case. You have to think back to when this shooting kind of first happened. We, you know, put yourself back in 2015. We've just come out of we've just come out of 2014. We've seen no indictment for the police officer who killed Eric Gardner in New York. No indictment for the officer who killed Michael Brown in Ferguson. Uh, no, uh, you've just seen the Tamir Rice shooting. When eventually there'll be no indictment for that. But in each of those cases, there was some obfuscation, or there was you know a lot of reasonable people said, well that guy really deserved it, or Eric Gardner shouldn't have resisted. Well Tamir Rice was a kid, but he had a toy gun that looked real. This was that, uh, you know, you hate this terminology, but this was that perfect victim case, right? Yeah. Here you had this unarmed black man who was shown on video clearly running away, um, not even particularly running very quickly, not that that should have made a difference, right? But that this was and that type of case. the video was case. clear. There was no doubt what that video showed, right? No, yeah. no, you know, un unquestionably. And then there's the question also of, you know, that video also shows uh, the officer, Michael Slager, seemingly then placing his taser next to Michael, or, or next to Walter Scott's body, right? And so this was something that, you know, I remember when the, when this shooting happened, getting emails from literally people who had been online trolling me for for months, saying, you know, all these guys deserve it. What are you talking? Well, actually, this one's kind of crazy. What do yeah, you mean? Yeah, right? you know, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that really was a wake up call for a lot of people because there there is a faction of people who say, yeah, <clears throat> well, just do what a police officer tells you. You're not going to get in trouble if you get pulled over. You know, just follow the orders. Okay, and, and I hear that all the time. This is a guy. That was clearly fearing for his life and with good reason. Uh, well, of course. And so, and if and the, what I say to people though is like, all right. So if it can happen one time, if if you are a black, you black man, a black woman, and you watch it happen one time on video, that in many ways validates your fears of all of the other yeah. times, right? You know that like, no, yeah. we have watched a, a black man get shot in the back running away. So what does that mean about all those other times where the story was that he was running away and shot in the back, and the police said, oh no, no, he wasn't. Well, wait a second, you know, and so I think that this case showed us kind of the power of video in many, uh, in, to many regards and to ch change people's minds and to change people's perceptions. But also now uh, with the judges, with these jury's verdict or lack of verdict um, kind of speaks to some of the limitations of that video. What was Slager's defense? So Slager's defense, Slager's argument here was that, and again, uh, Walter Scott had been pulled over for a missing brake light. Yeah. Um, he had. Let's, it, let's, it, let's remember what the original. For for an optional was. for a missing third brake light. So it wasn't even one of his two primary ones. Mm -hmm. It was the one that sits in the the back uh, windshield, which is not an actual, uh, you know, a, a legal requirement. A, a legal, no, not in South Carolina, it does not. And so it was an optional traffic stop to begin with. Um, Walter Scott had some outstanding child support payments. He had previously, um, I think several years earlier, had to do a few nights in jail for the same reason. He's engaged, getting ready to get married, and doesn't want to go to jail for a few nights. Um, and so gets out of his car and runs away. Slager uh, catch, catches up to him. This is kind of in a uh, kind of empty lot, mm -hmm. a, little, mm -hmm. a little pulled off of a main street. And Slager catches up to him. They have some type of physical struggle. Um, it seems based on kind of both accounts, it seems that Slager pulled his taser and Scott possibly reached out to prevent himself from being tased, grabbed the taser away from the officer. And then the video starts. And we see at the beginning of this video, Walter Scott kind of tossed the taser back towards the officer, turn and run away. The officer's version here is that, you know, this man had taken his taser from him. 
which horrified him. He thought he was about to get tased and in the heat of the moment pulled his gun and fired, um, perhaps not realizing how far away Walter <laughs> Scott had gotten. Um, he, his argument was that things were moving so quickly. This is someone who has run from me, who has grabbed my one of my weapons, and so therefore I was fearful of what he would do. Is the officer's he argument feared for his life? That he so feared we... for his life is is that is his arg is his turn of phrase. And what we know, based on the way our legal system works, is that if you can convince one person um, of a jury that you feared for your life as a police officer, it absolves you of essentially any anything you do. Doesn't it seem to be the rule that police officers can do whatever they want and kill anybody they want and get away with it? Well, we, we have a, um, especially on duty, right? Because there's a little bit of a distinction where you see officers sometimes being charged and convicted is when a police officer kills their wife in mm -hmm. the kitchen, right? When, right. The, you know, yeah. but, but short of, of that, right? On duty police officers. Uh, very, very rarely face consequence. We we did a piece uh, in 2015 as part of our series on police force um, where we looked at 10 years of fatal police shootings on duty. And of what was probably about 10,000 fatal police shootings, we had 54 cases where an officer was even charged and just a handful of those cases uh, convictions. Most are mistrials. Many are, non are not guilty verdicts. Uh, we have a system that is structured and set up to be extremely permissive of police officers we have baked in a bias towards them into kind of how our system operates yeah uh, and in a sense understandably because mm -hmm. we do depend on them of I course mean, we get in trouble we call a police officer right yeah and, and, and we're right. asking police to deal with things that we don't deal with every you know it's not the same as and in many cases they are putting their bodies on the line we've seen <laughs> this lately this rash of shootings of police of officers uh uh you know um uh, 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 around the country. But the other factor in this case down here that struck us when it first, when the jury was first seated, so this is Charleston, South Carolina, Peter's in South Carolina. I remember, I remember this, talking to you guys when this when this yeah. case first started because Peter so, was giving me food recommendations. Yeah, oh, yeah right. Charleston, that's right. I remember that now. That is my gift. <laughs> a, 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 a jury of 12, 11 white men and women and one black man in South Carolina. <laughs> Someone this might hardly represent <laughs> yeah. not, not quite representative yeah. Yeah. of. I've seen more than one out of twelve black people in Charleston, South Carolina. I mean, they're they're down there. Yeah. They have a very rich community there. <laughs> yes, no, it, it, it's it's a very robust <laughs> black community. Yeah. I mean, Charleston's. I mean, I, so, it's what forty or fifty percent. I mean, it's a, yeah. a, a, a no. Yeah. Almost so plurality of black people there. Yeah. We don't know who the holdout was, or do we? We, we don't know. It was not the, the, so we know it was not the one black juror. We do not know who it was, but the, the one black juror was the, uh, um, was the foreman, and so and so he was the oh, one giving was, oh. these notes saying, we've got this one juror who's holding out. Can we get rid of this guy? <laughs> and, and so yeah. we know it wasn't the black got juror. It, it yeah. was one of the 11 white jurors. Yeah. But why would the defense even accept that juror? That's a, I mean, and that, that's an interesting question. This that that each of that this jury should have been challenged, and I've seen people advance this argument that that this there's no way this jury should have been sat in the first place with yeah. it being so yeah. disrepresentative. Uh, now that becomes difficult. It's this you know becomes this kind of political strategy in terms of. Every step of a prosecution, well, are you going for a murder? Are you going for manslaughter? Do you try to save your political capital with the judge for some, you know, motion or hearing during the trial versus striking the jury? You know, and so that gets into a little bit of, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking. But, yeah. but beyond what the prosecution could or should have done here, 
we can all kind of say we understand that we're supposed to have a jury of our peers. It's supposed to be broadly representative of our society and, and populace at large, at least to the you know where they are locally. We know this is not the case here. And I would one would hope right that anybody doesn't matter the color of their skin could look at that videotape and say, whoa, this was not a justified. Homicide. It's been fascinating. The, I mean, the, again, this was one of the shootings that you had almost complete bipartisan consensus on. I, like I said, there yeah. are there are former cop bloggers who are literally the bloggers who write like every shooting. Like these are the 19 reasons why this guy deserved it. Who last night were like, this is crazy. They should have they should have <laughs> convicted this guy. The one of the first tweets I saw was from the head of the South Carolina GOP. Um, and again, Republican Party apparatus hasn't always been the most sympathetic to these victims of police shootings. And he's like, this is an abdication of justice. This is crazy, yeah, right? right. Yeah. And so. There is. This is one of those cases. And that... I saw the governor, Nikki Haley, even said, mm-hmm. don't worry, we're going to try this case again, and eventually we'll get justice in this case. Seemed to say, right, we yeah. know how she was thinking. Well, well talk about uh, there will be a, a second trial. Yes. So the prosecutors have said they are going to try this case again. Um, it's unclear what exactly they might do differently. Slager's if... no longer on the force, right? He's, no, no. Yeah. So they so they immediately fired him when the, when the police received, because, again, this was a bystander video, so they didn't even initially have it. Um, and then uh, this man, Fedenden Santana, who took the video with his cell phone, gave it to the police. And the moment the police, because initially, what, what's interesting, you've got to go back and look at the very initial coverage, right? This was a shooting that happened over a weekend, a Friday or Saturday. And so the next day's paper was the story of this cop who had been viciously attacked and his taser ripped from him yeah. and had to shoot to save his life. And the, the attorney's like, this is the kind of cop we all need. And then two days later, this video comes out mm. um, and everyone goes, oh, wait a second. Never mind. We take all those quotes back. That's yeah. not true. The yeah. um, Immediately, they fired this officer once they got the video. Yeah. Congressman Tim Ryan, our good friend from Ohio's 13th. Hey, Congressman. Good to see you. William, always right. a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Uh, congratulations on a good run. Thank you. Any regrets? No. Mm-mm. No, feel good about it. We adopt, in the last two days, we adopted uh, a lot of the reforms we proposed, and I think we shifted the national conversation in the last two weeks to yeah. talk about more about economics and you know how the party needs to talk about things that really unify all of us. It was, a, a, I know, a big, big decision on your part. Uh, uh, you put a lot of thought into it. Why did you decide to challenge uh, Leader Pelosi? Well, we're not winning. I mean, it's just that simple. You know, you can talk about all these other things, but since 2010, we're down 60-some seats. Uh, it, it wasn't all about 16. I mean, obviously, that was a presidential election, so there was a, a bigger narrative mm-hmm. going on. But we lost in 10. We didn't win enough in 12. We got killed again in 14, and 16 was what it was. And I just think we're totally disconnected from middle America. And, you know, two-thirds of our caucus is on the coast, either the West Coast or the East Coast. And, you know, we just, we're not winning, and I think we, we need to turn, I thought we needed to turn the page, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't right. have enough people <laughs> agree with me, but, but I thought it was time to, to move on. Well, we visited with you uh, by phone just uh, in the week before November 8th, uh, and I remember you were very honest saying, no, we're not going to win back the House. We need 30, but we think we can get, we we hope we can get, in, we're aiming at getting 15. Mm-hmm. You picked up six, yeah. so that makes your point, right? That yeah, I mean, we really underperformed, and, you know, there's a lot going on at the DCCC that I think we need to change, too. I think any other organization in the real world that had this significant of 
loss over time, you know, would would we'd have to hit re, they would hit the reset button. New coach, new players, new playbook, you know, new general manager. Being a Cleveland Browns fan, I know how this goes. But I just I just think it's it, it's we got to clear house and start over. I mean, you know, I'll give you one example. We, there's about 180,000 millennials in, on average in each congressional district. Hmm. We have no mechanism to talk directly to them. And and we think and that, they didn't turn out the way. Well, they really didn't. And, you know, and if you and they're not connected to the, the house, you know, they're not connected to understanding redistricting. This needs to be a deeper discussion. So coming in six months beforehand and start running TV ads, blowing millions of dollars doesn't work in part because millennials don't watch TV. Mm-hmm. So how about that one? Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, yeah. pers- you're blowing a bunch of no. money on and trying yeah. to persuade voters who. Don't watch what right. you're putting out. For starters. So you got uh, 60, 63 votes. Mm-hmm. What does that tell you about the House Democratic Caucus? I think there's a lot of consternation, a lot of people who you know, are anxious about what's happening and thought we needed to move in another direction. And looking for change. And right? looking for change. And, I, and, and the sentiment was bigger than that. I mean, clearly, you, you're, you're involved in inter, intra-party fights. And, you know, there are always reasons people agree with you but can't vote with you. And there was a yeah, lot of that. Right, and I knew sure. that going in. I've been here 14 years. I mean, I knew <laughs> I knew <laughs> right. that, it, you know, it was going to be an uphill slog. And Nancy Pelosi has earned a lot of respect for a lot of people and for good reason. I mm-hmm. mean, it's not like she's not a historic figure. I mean, and I said this. I mean, she's a historic figure. She was my mentor. And one of my proudest days of being a member of Congress was watching all the kids run up to the you know, run up to her grabbing that speaker's gavel. Unbelievably emotional moment, you know, but it's time. You know, I thought it was time. And right. Again, uh, as you indicated, um, there have been and really, I think, directly related to your uh, challenge, uh, some changes uh, in the leadership, mm-hmm. some new positions created, mm-hmm. a new people brought in. Um, good moves on your part? Yeah, do you think, do you yeah believe? I believe so. So the DCCC position is now an elected position. It always has been, but it's kind of been more of an appointment from the leader. Right. Now there was actually a vote. Um, nobody challenged Ben Ray Lujan, who I don't think is to blame for what happened. I mean, I think the culture at the DCCC is what needs change and hope, hoping that now the significance of him actually working for the caucus and not the leadership will empower him to go down there and break a few eggs, mm-hmm. you know, in order to make the kind of omelet that we need. Um, they created uh, other leadership positions for messaging. So we have three new messaging leaders that all got up last night in our caucus and made presentations. We got to hear from them what their message, what their vision, what their what what they were like. It was a job a job interview. Yeah. The caucus, yeah. you know, voted for that. Also, uh, people who are here uh, five years or less, they get a seat at the leadership table as well. Mm-hmm. So we really opened it up to allow, you know, and the funny part about this is these are all important reforms. But when you're in the majority, you know, people don't talk about these positions. You know, it was it's when you're in the minority, you kind of need you need more voices out there for you. So I think it's been good. I think it's been very, very helpful. And I was proud that I think this happened because we ran. Oh yeah, no, I, I I think so too. That's my read of it. What you mentioned uh, this one position being elected. How important is it that some of these positions be elected, not all of them appointed by the 
by the leader. And if, if you were the leader, wouldn't you want rather appoint oh, them? Oh, I would have changed them? the rules immediately back to them. <laughs> 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 well, no, I, <laughs> I just just kidding. I, yeah, just kidding. I, no, I think I think it's important for these to be elected um, because the caucus needs to have a voice, and then you're working for the caucus, and so your ear is to them. Also to the leadership, but mostly to the caucus, because you, you want to make sure, which is good, especially from the DCCC position, because you're keeping in tune with the people who are on the ground. You know, we've had a, we had a lot of members who got, like me, got 70% of the vote in their district, and Trump got, you know, or Hillary got 51, mm. you know, so there's this huge gap, you know, I think Pete DeFazio and, yeah. you know, Rick Nolan, Tim Walls up in Minnesota, I mean... I think Hillary got 33 in his district, and he won his seat back. So clearly those people know how to kind of really talk. One of the reforms I wanted, too, was to our steering and policy committee was to make it a quarter or a third of those seats on that committee to be filled from uh, by people who are in races that are close. Mm, you know, our yeah. front line, we call them the front line members. They should be at the leadership table deciding what policies we have, too. You know, because we're trying to do something from an 80 percent Democratic district. Well, now this man or woman has to take this back to a 50-50 district and try to win. Yeah, right. We need to at least know. I'm not saying it's going to change, but we at least need to at least know what their concerns are right. before we get into it. Well, what's the party need, do you feel? I think it starts with a message. What do we stand for? What do we believe in? And not that we need to change any other positions. I think we can clearly still be progressive on the equality issues and all of those. But on the economic issues, people don't connect to to us and see us as being progressive on economic issues. And to me, that's what really juices things up. We've, As I've said for the last couple of weeks, I feel like we sliced the electorate up, you know, Who's black? Who's white? Who's gay? Who's straight? Who's a man? Who's yeah. a woman? Uh, you know, and and there's no juice in that. There's no magic in that kind of campaign because you're slicing everybody up, and you're talking to them like they're just gay or they're just a woman. The so-called identity politics. Correct. Right. Yeah. Correct. And and that's like okay, so I'm Irish and Italian, right? So I'm proud to be Irish and I'm proud to be Italian, and we you know, calamari on Christmas Eve and, you know, I mean, uh, but that's not, I'm a father, you know, I'm, I got kids, I've got a mortgage, I've got, and these are people in the world feel like you're not, so you're not talking to me about what's really on my mind. What's on my mind is my pension, my health care bill, my kids' school, college or whatever, my car payment, the car just broke down, got a hole in the roof, you know, you know, the the dog bit the neighbor. I mean, whatever the thing is, but it's like economically we weren't connecting. And I think that's what drives the Democratic Party. That's what un unites the Democratic Party. So it's that message of economic populism and also the people we target have to be more, would you say, than the people who are on the, the, the West Coast or yeah. the East Coast. Yeah. All those people in between, particularly maybe... Wisconsin, yeah, Michigan, yeah. I mean, people that take, Ohio, exactly. People that take a shower after work is probably the best <laughs> phrase to describe yeah. it. You know, people who don't want to run a computer, they want to run a backhoe. And when you look at millennials, only a third of millennials have a college degree. So we talk about free college and all that, and I get it, but only that's still only a third. So there's two thirds that are working in the construction trades or working in the service industry or doing something else and they just feel like we're not even talking to them 
And yeah, it's a, there may be retraining. Of course there needs to be retraining. Look at all the automation. Look at all the technology. But for what? You know, what's the job? What's the plan? I want to go to work. Uh, and, and we completely missed that. And I think that that's the demise. I mean, because either people went for Trump or they didn't show up, Bill. Right, right. You know? Uh, how about uh, a new generation of leadership? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, one of the reasons I stepped up was because, you know, I got here when I was young. I was 29. You know, Dave mm-hmm. Obie was chair of the Appropriations yeah. Committee and Jack Murtha was chair of the Defense Appropriations. And I sat and I watched and Nancy was in charge. And I watched. I listened. I did what my Catholic school teachers taught me and shut up and listen, right? And I did. But after 10, 12, 14, 16, now I'm 43. I got three kids, two dogs, a wife, and a house. And I'm thinking Obama's are gone, Biden's are gone, Clinton's are gone, Harry Reid's gone. Who's stepping up? And no one was stepping up. And I thought, you know what? I'm doing it. Uh, that kind of wraps it up for today. Uh, Congressman uh, Tim Ryan here. Uh, good conversation with him. And uh, that took the place of any uh, parting shot for today. So let's just say thank you for being with us, folks. Tuesday, it is now all yours. We'll see what uh, trouble Donald Trump gets into today. Uh, and I'm sure we'll uh, talk about that more tomorrow. Have a great Tuesday. Come back and join us on Wednesday. David Jackson, USA Today, will be with us as he always is. You have a good one. We'll look for you tomorrow right here on this The Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show.